Welcome to podcast number four in our Simplified Prior Authorization podcast series. My name is Denise Balsh. Today we'll be talking about why prior authorization is important to physicians. And this is part of the Simply Prior Authorization Communication Initiative. So uh, with me here today is Dr. Intias Khan. Dr. Khan grew up in Winnipeg and achieved a Bachelor's of Science at uh, the University of Manitoba. And realizing it was really, really cold for a really long time, he moved to Montreal for the somewhat uh, balmy weather where he graduated from McGill Medical School. Before realizing that the weather down the QEW in Toronto was relatively tropical. Uh, So when he moved there, he completed his fellowship at the University of Toronto in internal medicine and rheumatology and completed his fellowship with the American College of Physicians. He is the former head of rheumatology at the Mississauga Hospital. He is in private practice and continues to be active in clinical research. Dr. Khan joined the ORA or the Ontario Rheumatologists Association Board of Directors in 2010 and is currently the chair of the ORA Private Payers Committee, which a position which he's held since 2019. So welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting me, Denise. I look forward to chatting with you today about something that is so important to both of us and to all of our citizens in Ontario. That's great. So we'll get uh, we'll get stuck in. Um, first of all, um, can you talk to us and t- share with us some of the treatments that you prescribe that you find are subject to prior authorization from a private payer perspective? Yeah, the, the simple answer is that we're really talking about advanced therapeutic agents. So those would be considered things like biologic therapy. I think a lot of our uh, listeners have heard of terms like uh, Remicade and Enbrel and Humira, and there's probably about 12 or 13 other players on the market now in that category, along with the, the newer small molecules. And these are the things referred to as JAK inhibitors. And there's a variety of those and new ones coming on the market all the time. Basically, what we're talking about with prior authorization is getting access to some fairly expensive drugs. So it sounds like um, in, in your treatment protocols, there are a lot of drugs that require prior authorization. It's not just the odd one. Yeah, that, that's correct. It's um, Although the diseases that we treat have very similar types of manifestations, um, many of the treatments that we, we use are very similar across different disease entities like rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis-related arthritis and inflammatory bowel disease-related arthritis, just to name a few. And what's your overall experience with the prior authorization process with uh, private plans with insurers? Yeah, the recurring theme that we see is that we really don't know exactly what the criteria are that the individual insurance companies are using to authorize or to approve a drug accordingly. It's become frustrating to have a patient who's sitting in front of us in desperate need of a new therapeutic agent. And then we discuss what that therapeutic agent could be. We discuss the details, you know, what what are the risks? What are the benefits? We talk about the logistics in terms of administration. Are these drugs that are infused in a clinic or in a hospital setting? Are these drugs that are self-administered with an injection once a week or once every couple of weeks? Or is this uh, even an oral agent? Um, so we've got a lot of things to, to, to talk about. And then we also have to go through a bunch of preliminary investigations even before the person can start the medication. So we look at things like 
chest x-rays, TB skin testing. We want to make sure that their vaccinations are all up to date. And that's, you know, particularly an issue now with what's been going on globally for the last year and a half. We want to make sure that that ancillary consultants have been spoken to, uh, that the issues have been discussed. The last thing we want to do is to treat our small circle only to find out it's impacting negatively on something else in question. So after we do all this, and we go through all of this, it's frustrating to find out that the therapy that we want the patient to be on may not be authorized by that particular uh, company. And it's really frustrating when a drug that might be authorized by one company isn't authorized by another company, even though the patient is the same, the drug is the same. Sometimes the insurance carriers even have different tiering. So you could be with one insurance company, but your neighbor who's also with the same insurance company may have a completely different level of coverage. So they may have access to a drug that you don't have access to. You know, for, for us, it's frustrating. For, for patients, it's not just frustrating, it's frightening, right? Because we've spent all this time uh, discussing what the best option are. And, and when we come up to, to a, a proposed plan of action and we think it's the right plan for the right person in front of us, and then we turn around and say, oh, yeah, that's plan one. But we have to look at plan two and plan three because plan one's not covered by your insurance company. So you can imagine, you know, being on that side of the desk and, and hearing that this is the best drug for me, but I can't get it because of my insurance. Yeah, no, completely understood. Um, so if that's the experience on the private side, you're also obviously um, dealing also with the public side. Uh, and reimbursement issues there. So how do you compare the two plans? Um, how does it compare to the public plan? Yeah, in, in one word, I would say it's transparency. See, the, the, the difference is, is that we know exactly what the criteria are for the public plan in order to get access to medication. In fact, the Ontario Rheumatology Association saw this coming way back in about 2013. Um, the biologic drugs had been out for about a decade before that. And we saw that utilization was going up and the costs were not coming down. The cost of the drugs were going up as well. So we were looking at a huge hit on the, uh, on the healthcare system. And we thought it would be best if we worked with the ministry of Ontario uh, health and long-term care to work on, on an appropriate approach to getting access to advanced therapeutics. So in 2013, we were able to establish uh, criteria to uh, access these drugs. And those criteria have actually withstood the test of time. Almost a decade later, we're still using the criteria. So what that means is, whereas when we apply for a drug cover, coverage under a private plan, it's a bit of a crapshoot. Whereas when we apply for a drug under the public plan, we know exactly what we're, we need to answer. And um, accordingly, we almost never get a rejection from the public plan because we know exactly what we're dealing with. So does that mean then um, if the criteria is transparent that uh, if you know a patient won't qualify for a particular product based on their profile, that you just, you just go to the next drug automatically. So you, what might, might've been your first choice yeah. Uh, if you know that it's not going to be covered under the under the public system, you'll go to your second or your third choice. Well, it, it depends. Um, a lot of the drugs are similar enough in uh, in mechanism of action 
that we, we may simply um, shift from one option to another in the same family. Um, in some cases where we're dealing with a particularly rare disease or, or for a drug that really, um, you know, is the only option for that patient, we will, we will apply for something called special access, where we'll, we will ask for them to have the file reviewed by someone on a one-to-one -one basis, as opposed to just being um, sent through the usual process where we can have someone evaluate the feasibility and, and the appropriateness of the therapy in question. So it certainly um, must save some paperwork if you're applying for a drug that you're pretty sure that they're gonna get, patients gonna get covered for, as opposed to the private plan where you could be, you could have to make a couple of applications before you can get the patient on therapy. So that takes time for the patient waiting, but also from you in, in, in your office to get, to get those forms processed and to working with patient support programs uh, to get those claims into the insurers. Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's always a question of trying to get uh, therapy as, as quickly as possible with the, with the least amount of uh, bureaucratic intervention. Which brings us perfectly to my next question, which is um, if we look at the actual process rather than, you know, the, the criteria, but if we look at the um, process of submitting claims for prior authorization uh, drugs or drugs that have been designated prior authorization, um, what is that burden in terms of the completion of forms, the paperwork, the back and forth? Uh, I know you've got patient support programs that are supposed to help, um, but but what is the burden on you? So speaking with my colleagues, it, it, it's a very big time constraint to, to our practices, anywhere from one or two hours per week up to maybe eight or nine hours per week, depending on, on your, your style of practice and how often and how much uh, you use patient support programs. The, the problem is each of the, the, the providers has their own proprietary forms. So these are often multi-page forms with multiple fields. They all ask for previous medications. They want start dates. They want stop dates. They want doses tried. They want to know what were the responses to the previous therapy. Were there side effects? Were there tolerability issues? Uh, was there loss of, loss of efficacy? Some of the insurance companies even want us to state whether the patient has applied elsewhere for the drug. For example, have we applied to the Ministry of Health uh, to see if there's provincial coverage available for, for the drug. So this is a huge amount of paperwork and it's all non-compensated time. So you got to find time uh, at the end of the day or in the middle of the day or sometime to, to get this work done. And, and the biggest thing is that there's a shortage of rheumatologists. So all the time spent doing bureaucratic paperwork detracts from our primary focus, which is treating patients. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, I actually am aware that there is that shortage and there's been a shortage for a long time. So there's, a, a, I'm sure there's a long backlog of patients that uh, are waiting to, to see you for um, your evaluation and for, for treatment. Um, so in what ways is assistance available to you and your patients to ensure they receive access to the products you prescribe? We talked a little bit about patient support programs, but um, something that we're talking about with the uh, Simplified Prior Auth is we're really trying to focus in on, you know, what we can facilitate that would create a very patient-centric agnostic process so that 
people like yourself and patient support programs and drug access navigators in the case of oncology aren't constantly having to flip systems or uh, go through systems to find the right forms or to find the right patient support programs here, you know, just to make the whole process flow easier. So how is that relationship with using patient support programs? Because you're not always using the same one, right? Yeah, so each company um, has their own patient support program. And sometimes the patient support program people change in midstream. Uh, and sometimes that's a little bit frustrating. Um, the, the primary role of the patient support program should be to help navigate our uh, patients through the healthcare system and access the medication as easy and as quickly as possible. Um, the, the problem is that, that patient support programs aren't equal. So every company has their own, but some are better than others. Um, there's no standardization. Um, I guess you have to look at the at the the genesis of the patient support programs. That really started way back in the early 2000s when we had our first three biologic drugs come out with Remicade, Enbrel, and Humira all coming out within a year or so of each other. And these were expensive drugs, and there were a lot of things that had to be done before we could get coverage. So the patient support programs were very skeletal at that time. And um, over time, they've sort of evolved in a Darwinian way. You know, the weaker programs have disappeared and the stronger programs have become stronger. And and they have to because that's often a a differentiating factor between our therapeutic options. Sometimes the drugs are the same, but the patient support program may be superior to another one, which which might bias our, our prescribing practice. So the, the PSPs, the patient support programs that we see in 2021, don't look anything like the patient support programs we saw in 2003. And I think that's a good thing. Um, they've been very responsive to our ideas. They've listened to our criticisms. They've, um, they, they've gotten much better at, uh, at their primary function. Well, that's good to hear because, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not always that... Um, organizations, whether they be PSPs or otherwise, are, are open to that continuous improvement uh, process, which is really important in whatever field you're working in. Um, do you find that, like, I, we've talked a little bit about this, and I know that uh, you shared some of your thoughts before, um, in terms of having that kind of one agnostic platform that you can log into, that patient support programs could use, that could connect to your EMR to sort of smooth that actual pro- workflow process without a, without favoring one PSP over another. Do you think that would be helpful to your role? Yeah, Denise, the, the, when we talked about this a couple of months ago, um, it, was, it's a, it was a very exciting concept and one that's, that's long overdue. Um, I, I think the time is right with, with you know, what COVID-19 has done with limiting access to doctor's offices and patient charts. And, and it, it's not so easy for patient support providers uh, programs to get involved in, in hands-on uh, patient issues. And whatever we can do online and electronically and standardized and simplified, and um, I, li- I like the term agnostic, uh, where it is going to apply to everybody's insurance program. Uh, I, I think I, I can't wait to, to see how this works. And I think that it's going to change the way we do things. And it's going to make 
patients access easier. That's great. Yeah. Well, I hope so because I'm sure working hard at it. So, and there's a lot of other people that are working hard right alongside me. So uh, thanks for that. Um, uh, that's a voice of support because that's what I really need when I get up in the morning and I've got a long day ahead of me working on this. Um, so if you um, look specifically, maybe there's a couple of key things and I think maybe you've already mentioned one of them. Uh, it ways that access through both the public and private pairs could be improved. I think we talked about transparency. Would you like to comment further on that? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what we're talking about with, with an ideal program. Once everybody knows what the rules are, it's going to make things easier. It's going to save everybody's time. It's not going to just save our time as physicians, but it's also going to save the people at the insurance level as well, because they're not going to be receiving incomplete forms. They're not going to be receiving poor quality data. They're not going to be receiving inappropriate requests. Once we all know what, what, um, what we need to do and, and what hoops we need to jump through, we'll be, uh, we'll be all set. Well, I can't promise perfection the first go round. I think like patient support programs and how they have improved over time, uh, I think we'll find that um, with uh, EPA or electronic prior authorization that um, we'll start with kind of our, our baseline and we'll over time be able to make uh, more improvements to it so that it makes uh, your workload easier and the work of patient support programs easier. And hopefully uh, the end, end game is really to make a uh, patient centric process um, that will be beneficial to patients and hopefully speed up the time to therapy. Um, that's going to be, I think, the, uh, a huge win as well. So we've talked about simply prior authorization and you've, um, you've been very generous in your comments uh, in support of uh, an electronic prior authorization processes, which is what we're trying to introduce. Um, is there anything else before we close off today that you would say you would like uh, people listening to know who maybe aren't that familiar with prior authorization and the reimbursement process uh, that you'd like to share with them? And I'm thinking particularly because uh, of advisors and plan sponsors or employers because they really don't get involved in this process. They're really, they sort of know what happens, but um, when in our research, when we spoke to advisors and plan sponsors, they really didn't have much of an idea of how complex the process is and how it can really draw out that um, access um, timeline. Yeah, I think sometimes our, our partners in the insurance industry, um, they, they, they're all living in, in their own houses and they're all inventing something. So, so they're, they're, they're all coming up with things and they're all a little bit different. And for them working individually, it's not a big issue because as far as they're, they're concerned, they have one form and it's only one form and this is what we use for everything. The problem is there's, you know, dozens of insurance companies. So everyone's got their one form and, and an electronic prior authorization agnostic program would be of immense help, not just for rheumatology, but I can imagine it'd be a game changer for things like oncology and dermatology and gastroenterology, all, all these other um, fields that, that have, very expensive drugs in, in the wings and, and drugs that really cannot be just 
prescribed randomly. We do need some kind of oversight. We do need some kind of um, protocols to know, you know, what, what is the right drug for the right person at the right time. And, and the, the whole idea of doing this through electronic uh, means is, is, is it's more than just coming. It's actually here. The, the SADI system, the Special Authorization of Digital Information Exchange, um, has already mandated that they're no longer be, going to be accepting um, faxed information and requests at the ministry level by December 31. And the only way that we're going to be able to apply for our drugs through the um, public plan is going to be using SADI. So that, and I think that's an important point because what it, what, what some of the, um, I guess, concerns are about moving on the private side to an electronic prior authorization process is the transmission of personal data electronically and the safety and, and securing the privacy of that data. I mean, we hear about privacy breaches all the time on credit cards. Uh, we definitely have to do a better job uh, than that with people's health information. So I think that's really one of the challenges that we need to address to make uh, sure that everybody's comfortable who's using the system is, is gonna be comfortable because if they're not comfortable, they're not gonna use a private, a private uh, uh, prior authorization process. So I think that that's, um, that's something that's very well said. So we can learn a lot from Sadie. Well, what I'd like to do now is thank you very much. Uh, it's been great speaking with you. I know we had a chance to get acquainted uh, a couple of times we've spoken. Um, it was very generous of you uh, to be with us today and share your thoughts on prior authorization, some of the challenges that you and your patients face and your colleagues, of course. And it's been great to have your input into uh, the Simply Prior Authorization Initiative and uh, the EPA Initiative um, and uh, basically the platform that we're looking to be able to offer uh, in the private payer system. So I'd like to thank you very much for your time today and appreciate uh, your support. You are very welcome, Denise. It's always a pleasure talking with you and I'm so glad that you took the time to, to reach out to the Ontario Rheumatology Association as one of your first partners in moving forward with this so um, important initiative. Thank you. Thank you.